good evening, everybody. Uh, my name, as it says on the on the notice behind you, is Professor Michael Cox of the Department of International Relations. Um, I'm one of the co-directors of a centre here called Ideas. Uh, welcome to this uh, event, commemorating or commiserating, talking about, reflecting about something extraordinarily important in the history of the late 20th century, and which I think still has an enormous consequence for the world we live in today, namely the collapse, unexpected possibly, we'll talk about that later on, predicted, unpredicted collapse, maybe, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union causes and consequences. We have uh, three distinguished speakers uh, this evening. I won't go through them in too much detail in terms of their own uh, biographies, but this will be the order uh, of appearance. They'll all speak from here for about 15 to 20 minutes each. The first speaker will be Sir Roderick uh, Braithwaite, who was British ambassador to Moscow from 1988 uh, uh, to 1992 um, and has written about that event and indeed a series of other events associated with the history of the Soviet Union in the 1980s, particularly uh, on Afghanistan. Our second speaker we welcome uh, from Paris, although originally of course from the former Soviet Union, from Russia, Andrei Grachov. It's not the first time Andrei has spoken here at the LSE. It's wonderful to welcome you back again, Andrei, a good friend. Uh, of the schools and, and a wonderful speaker, uh, has served in the International Relations Department, or served in the International Relations Department of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, or CPSU, and became a confidant and official spokesman for the last president of the USSR, Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. And last, but by no means least, uh, good friend, colleague, uh, Professor Margot Leip, uh, taught here for many years on Soviet foreign policy in the Soviet Union and continues to teach at the LSE in one way or another, former professor of international relations here, now Professor Emeritus at the LSE International Relations here today. And her expertise relates to foreign policy in particular to Russia and Eastern Europe. But with no further ado, I'll invite uh, Roderick Braithwaite to begin the proceedings for this evening to discuss the discussion the Soviet Union's collapse, causes and consequences. Roderick, we look forward to what you have to say. I wonder if you could welcome him in good LSE style. Thank you. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, I'm going to talk about five aspects of the collapse, and I suspect, although we're not meant to overlap, the three of us, I can't see how we're going to avoid that, but we're coming at it from the subject from completely different angles, so with any luck, even if we repeat ourselves, it won't be too boring. Um, and I'm going to talk about five aspects. The first one, which Michael's already talked about, was whether the collapse was foreseeable, and if so, why didn't Western governments, not speak of the Soviet government, predict it? The second question is why was the collapse comparatively bloodless? The third question, which I think Margot will expand on, is how important in the collapse were external actors? 
Fourth is uh, what I put down, but I don't quite mean it, is could the collapse have taken a more benign form? That's to say, could the Soviet Union have collapsed in a way which didn't lead to the kind of disasters uh, that the Russian people suffered from in the 1990s? And then briefly, because it's not what I meant to be talking about, what happens next? Um, I want to make a first point, which is about history in general. Historians are never going to agree on the reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union, just as they still haven't agreed on the reasons for the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's just one of those things. Nobody would be able to write a PhD if, if the thesis was set in concrete. So it's very good for historians that nobody ever agrees on the reasons for things. Um, Now, was the collapse foreseeable and why wasn't it predicted? Well, I was there in the mid-60s in Moscow and it, was, it seemed to me at the time, I don't think that's only hindsight, perfectly clear that that system was not working. Uh, nothing in the shops, agriculture dysfunctional, a complete mismatch between heavy industry, defence and the economy as a whole, uh, and growth rates, whatever Gosplan said, approaching zero in the early 1960s. Now, uh, it, of course, it didn't matter what I saw or didn't see. Uh, the most important person to see that was Khrushchev. And because he saw that things were going wrong, he set out to try and reform the system. Um, his ideas for reforming the system were not very good ones. It didn't work, and he was overthrown by the combination of hard men, the army, the KGB, and the party. What then happened for the next uh, 15 years, roughly, was that the Soviet Union floated rather aimlessly on a sea of high-priced oil. Um, but Khrushchev's ideas, or the ideas that, were that surrounded Khrushchev and that he encouraged to some extent, continued underground. And in public, Sakharov at the beginning of the 70s predicted that the system would collapse unless something was done to free up the politics. And in private, uh, the head of Gosplan, the man who was supposed to know what was going on in the economy by Bakov, uh, was equally gloomy. So the appearance of stability under Brezhnev was a false appearance. And as the evidence continued to pile up, the men in the Kremlin, who by then were all rather old, became increasingly des des desperate to find somebody who could put things right. And they looked around and they found Gorbachev. They thought Gorbachev is young, energetic, uh, full of bright ideas, and they thought orthodox. And that's, of course, where they made their mistake. And at that point, so we're talking about the mid-80s by then, the ideas which had been bubbling around in the 1960s re-emerged. A lot of the same people under Brezhnev were still talking about that, including in the uh, Central Committee Secretariat, um, were carrying these ideas forward. And when it became possible for these ideas to re-emerge, they did re-emerge. Uh, a lot of the ideas were 
naive and impractical, but they were a necessary intellectual trigger for what then happened. Now, um, that's what I believe and believed at the time that I saw. Um, so the question is, why did the analysts in the West get it so completely wrong? There's a very good um, compendium of documents which the CIA put out in the, it's about 1993, called at Cold War's End, and they set out to, to answer that question, why did they get it wrong? And it's a, it's a strikingly intellectually honest work, I think. Well, they quote from the National Intelligence Estimate of April, the 11th of April 1989, and our 11th of April 1989 was after the, uh, a series of remarkable events, which I'll come back to, uh, but they concluded, these people, that the Soviet Union would remain the West's principal adversary for the foreseeable future. Well, the wall came down about three months later and the Soviet Union ceased to exist about two years later. So the question is, why did they get it so wrong? And my view is that it's actually perfectly simple why they got it so wrong. It's not a particularly unusual story. And the answer is to do more than with the politics, almost with the sociology of the way these things happen, the way governments do things. During the Cold War, uh, because it was a war, though it was cold, both sides saw things in black and white as they do in wars. Officials stuck to worst case analysis. What is the worst thing that could happen? Let's prepare for that. This is safe because if it doesn't happen you don't get blamed, whereas if you predict something less than that and the worst thing happens then you get shot probably. Um, it's nice for soldiers because it means that they can demand better weapons and more of them. And in 1988, uh, comes in this compendium. A CIA analyst told Congress at the end of 1988 that he and his colleagues had never really looked at the factors which could lead to the disintegration of the Soviet Union because, he said, quote, we would have been told we were crazy and people would have asked for our heads. Now, that sounds rather disgraceful intellectually. I don't myself think it is all that disgraceful because institutions, governments or any institution, no doubt LSE too, has to operate on the basis of a consensus. You can't get people all to point in the same direction unless you've got some common consensus or ideology. And that means, of course, that dissenting voices, even if they're tolerated, are not listened to. And I think that happens in all institutions. It wasn't only a failure of the CIA. Just a small, I mentioned it at the beginning, I, I try to make a difference, it may be a false one, between foreseeing an event and predicting events. Foreseeing them means that you can identify trains and you can say this is probably what's going to happen and you can well be right. Predicting, it means it's, when you say it's going to happen on April Fool's Day next year, that you can never do. You can identify trends but you can't predict the timing of events. So that was the first thing. The second thing, why was the collapse so peaceful? Well, one of the things about the collapse of the Soviet Union was that a lot less blood was shed in the collapse of the Soviet Empire than in the collapse of any of the other 20th century empires, the British, the French, the Portuguese, and the Dutch. 
to say nothing of the third German empire, which the collapse of which was, really was a bloody affair. There was bloodshed. There was a war between two republics, Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia. There was civil war in Tajikistan. And there was communal rioting in Kyrgyzstan. But the imperial power, the central forces of the state, were little used and shed little blood. They did shed blood in Vilnius. They shed blood in uh, Tbilisi. And they shed quite a lot of blood, which everybody's forgotten, in Baku, which everybody, because it's a long way away. And so nobody knows about it, but it was pretty nasty. Now, since history can do all sorts of things, it could have been different. It could have been bloody. The Russians, when I was there, the Russians were terrified that it would end up in civil war. I thought myself, but it was only a faint, it was a hope, but not a very strong one, that the Russians had inoculated themselves against civil war in the early 1920s. But anyway, there could have been a civil war. When the war came down, we were terrified. We were terrified, for example, that there would be an incident in East Germany, that a collection of uh, East German youths would attack the Soviet barracks and the Russian soldiers would fire back, and then what would have happened? Well, none of those things did happen. We were lucky on the one hand, but I think we also have to thank Gorbachev for the fact that uh, methods which could have been used were not used. Gorbachev is criticised by people for not having been very courageous and for not having known what he was doing. I think both those accusations are wrong. To challenge, to, to make the changes that he made from 1985, and particularly 1988 onwards, in the Soviet Union was very courageous. Um, quickly to list them, he reinstated the Orthodox Church. He completely overhauled the Communist Party. He allowed, deliberately, a very considerable measure of free speech. At the UN, at the end of 88, he made a speech which, at the time, Western governments downplayed, which was, in effect, uh, signalling the end of empire. In March 89, he held the first genuine, genuine elections, they were genuine elections, that were ever held in a communist country. And at about the same time, he gave the Eastern Europeans, in effect, a green light to leave the Soviet bloc if they wanted to. But what then happened to him, of course, is what does happen to reformers. If you try and reform a sclerotic system, the first thing that happens is you destabilize it. And it was clear from early 1990 that's to say about two years before the Soviet Union disappeared, that a steady, messy disintegration of the Russian Empire was on the cards. The question, as I said earlier, was that you could say that, although some people didn't, and now say they were caught by surprise, but the question was when would it appear? And as I said, there were also... Uh, there is alternative histories which you can write if you want to. They didn't happen, but you can write them. And as I say, Gorbachev, philosophically, politically, and I think probably morally and personally, was determined to avoid bloodshed, and on the whole, he succeeded. Now, he's accused of three serious mistakes. One of them is that he should have abandoned communism instead of trying to reform it.
The second one is that he bungled the economic reform. And the third one is that he mismanaged the nationalities issue, uh, the question of whether the Soviet republics, the Baltics, and so on, should stay inside the Soviet Union or not. I think all those criticisms are exaggerated. The first one, that he didn't set out to destroy communism, it seems to me absurd to have expected him to. He was born and brought up in a system which had given him and his colleagues their careers, and to expect him to come into office determined to destroy that system was, as I say, psychologically absurd. He did evolve in his ideas. Towards the end, I mean, when Andre was dealing with him, he had moved quite close to something which we would recognize as European social democracy. He moved a long way from the communism he'd grown up in, and in my view, that was a perfectly honorable path for him to have taken. Those who think that he should have acted more radically forget, which he never did, forget what happened to Khrushchev. Khrushchev was overthrown by a combination of hard men, and he was afraid that would happen to him. And of course he was right. That combination did overthrow him in the summer of 1991. The second criticism is about the economics. Well, he didn't understand the economic problem. I don't think that's particularly surprising given where he came from, but he also feared. He feared that once you start tinkering with it, it would collapse, and he was afraid of the disorientation and disruption that a radical free market solution would bring. Yeltsin, of course, did bring about a sort of helter-skelter market reform. It brought with it runaway inflation and impoverishment for a great many Russians. That may have been the necessary price for market reform, but of course it didn't endear either market economics or democracy to ordinary Russian people. And then the third criticism, that he should have done something about nationalities. I don't believe that by 1989 that was possible. I think that the genie was out of the bottle. He could have sent in the tanks, but what he chose to do instead was to try to create a voluntary federation of the Soviet republics. And we may forget that now, but that's what Western governments wanted at the time. Western governments were terrified of a disorderly disintegration of the Soviet Union, a nuclear armed state, what they call Yugoslavia with nukes, which is why both Thatcher and President Bush supported the continuation of the Soviet Union until it was no longer possible to do that. Well, of course, Gorbachev's attempt at a union treaty came too late. It was stymied by the hard men who were determined it shouldn't happen, and also by Yeltsin, who turned out was also not interested in preserving the Soviet Union because what he was interested in was becoming boss in Russia. And the question to the critics is, what would they suggest instead? What do they think was feasible? What could have been done? with the nationalities once they decided on independence. It's the old imperial problem. We have the same problem. Now, how long, much longer do you want me to go on for? Can you do three minutes? I can do as many minutes as you like. I'll try to make it only three. I'll give you four then. Okay. Well, I, I, well, you did ask me to talk about the external <laughs> actors. And we're getting into the present now, and that's really for these people here. But 
many Russians believe that their country was brought down by a Western conspiracy. If you look at the Russian web, you'll find amongst the conspirators who are still trying to bring it down is me. I figure quite largely on one or two blogs. I tell Russians it's a pretty poor tribute to this great nation and this great system to think it could have been brought down by a bunch of CIA operatives. <laughs> but of course, there are a lot of people in the West who think something similar. They think it was brought down by Reagan and perhaps Thatcher, <clears throat> by, by US economic and military pressure. I think that, too, is a huge exaggeration. Of course, external pressure helped to weaken the system. But then, so did Soviet imperial ambition and imperial overreach. The Soviets didn't have to uh, try and run an empire for which they didn't have the resources. Um, now, going back to what I first said, there's no certainty about what the reasons were, but my own view remains that the, that the reasons were internal. The system was uh, not viable. And just very briefly, and then I'll stop leaving out two whole sections, uh, which we can come back to in the discussion. Uh, external actors. Uh, just very briefly, the, the important external actors in the West were the United States and Germany. Both of them had important matters of national interest to negotiate about, and both of them did. Uh, Britain didn't. Britain was largely irrelevant throughout that time. It's not something we like to think, but we were on the whole. Mrs. Thatcher, of course, was very special, and she did have a role in loosening up Eastern Europe before the Americans did. And she did provide a useful bridge between Moscow and Washington when they weren't on speaking terms. But we shouldn't exaggerate the importance. Now, that's where I'm going to stop. Okay? Excellent point to stop. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andre. Uh, iron discipline, equally iron discipline, will now be displayed by Andre. Andre, over to you. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you, Mike. Well, uh, <coughs> uh, my uh, my task is considerably uh, facilitated by the fact that you asked me to uh, to limit myself to uh, one year, 1991. <laughs> first and second uh, well to uh, a specific aspect uh, uh, living and feeling how was it uh, in 1991 so and this gives me a, a, a possibility and maybe an alibi to uh, to make it very personal maybe it's uh, what you expected uh, mm -hmm. uh, from me uh, since uh, well all the analytic, analytical work uh, I think I've done with, uh, with the book uh, called Gorbachev's Gamble, uh, which is uh, behind this door. <laughs> and uh, I profit from the presence of Helen Darendorf here to thank her once again for great help she gave to me to make it uh, readable in English. Well, <clears throat> And uh, another uh, privilege uh, I have is uh, that uh, this aspect uh, allows me to uh, escape from uh, a competition in, in, uh, in, in the analysis of uh, 
various reasons of why it, did it happen this way and not another. Competition with uh, a lot of hindsight prophets uh, who uh, claim that they knew it all uh, 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 ahead. Now, uh, we used to say in Russia uh, that uh, Russian past is unpredictable. <laughs> and uh, uh, there is a reason for it, because it's, uh, it's, its past is being considered constantly revised. Uh, until now, you, you cannot hope to, to get any uh, consensus, even on such uh, already distant historic events as the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 or uh, figures like uh, Lenin and Stalin. So how can you expect this uh, for Gorbachev, for the collapse of the Soviet Union, and even the, the end of the, of the Cold War? So uh, uh, I'll, I'll try to, to, to rescue myself be behind my personal recollections. It's going to be a kind of opening the family album. 1991, let's not forget that uh, Alongside an, a lot of dramatic political uh, and geostrategical changes and events, it was the year of uh, the 60th anniversary of Mikhail Gorbachev. It passed almost unnoticed, but uh, let's uh, make an exercise of a counterfactual uh, history and uh, let's try to imagine how this anniversary would have looked uh, had he been an average general secretary. Uh, Roderick, uh, I'm speaking under your uh, control. Certainly, he would uh, uh, have the, the, the right for a solemn session in the Bolshoi Theater or in the Kremlin uh, Palace of the Congresses. Reports of working uh, class uh, collectives uh, and uh, greetings from pioneers, uh, perhaps even the Museum of the Gifts uh, or presents like. Uh, like Stalin uh, did. Well, you may laugh at it now, but uh, in fact, that was quite a possible uh, option. And uh, at least it was, uh, anyway, less improbable compared to what really happened. And what really happened? 1991, the year started badly. Uh, with January, uh, dramatic clashes in, in Baltic republics, which uh, produced victims, and uh, <clears throat> politically with a dramatic uh, situation for Gorbachev because of the ambiguity of his position uh, regarding uh, his personal involvement or even knowledge, or at least knowledge, about uh, uh, the preparation of, his, uh, of these events. Well, it all added to the ambiguity of his recent uh, choice that he, he made several weeks before that of uh, building a new political team around him. And the reason for it was, as he explained it to Alexander Yakovlev, well, since uh, the society and the public opinion cannot digest the amount of change proposed by Perestroika, we have to slow down the pace of reform and maybe to move right. 
And so uh, it was more or less at that time that he sacrificed uh, uh, most of his radical and, uh, and uh, devoted uh, supporters. Well, sacrificed in the sense of just put them in the refrigerator for a while. And uh, uh, de facto have, uh, have, have become hostage to uh, these uh, hardliners many of whom became the future putschists in August of, of the same year. Well, uh, the reason uh, was the following. He sincerely believed at that time that uh, acting in this way, he, is still, he was still able to prevent the confrontation between the radicals from both sides, radical Democrats and radical hardliners. And uh, with this uh, maneuver to, uh, uh, to win uh, his main gamble, which was gaining time, gaining time for the change inside the society. Maybe more in its mentality and its psychology than, than on the ground, over which he was uh, having less and less control. But uh, he was wrong, because this was no more the time for ambiguity and for hopes to keep everybody on board, on board of perestroika, because its advance has uh, already so polarized the Soviet society that Gorbachev, uh, instead of being uh, the, the dumpfer, you have a word? I think about that one. Yeah, the amortizer. Yeah. Shock absorber. Shock absorber. Shock absorber, yeah. Became the target of both. So, <clears throat> we, uh, we are already in spring 91, and uh, this time uh, the resignation of Gorbachev is formally demanded by both camps, both political families, by the uh, conservative Supreme Soviet and by Boris Yeltsin, who demands his resignation on behalf of, uh, of the Republican uh, leaders. And at the same time, in April, well, even more, in, uh, more earlier in, in the spring, the preparation of the future putsch is on the way. And uh, amazingly, <coughs> The first person who could have uh, felt that uh, differently, maybe from even the CIA uh, informers and officials, was uh, Richard Nixon. At least he had the chance to to get some uh, first-hand information from uh, coming from one of the organizers of the putsch, because Nixon was in Moscow in uh, April, May, in 1991. And having visited everybody, Gorbachev, uh, Yeltsin, and uh, a day before his departure, he received a, a visit of an aide of uh, Krichkov, the, uh, the then uh, chairman of the KGB. And uh, this messenger brought to the attention of Nixon and probably to the attention of the American uh, administration of that time a message, a word from, uh, from Krichkov, and this message uh, 
uh, was the following. Uh, well, maybe the, our American colleagues should not concentrate as much uh, uh, on such figures as Gorbachev and Yeltsin because the Russian, the Soviet society at that time uh, is uh, taking fatigue, is, uh, is being tired of them. There are other people on the horizon and maybe uh, it would be wise to, uh, to give uh, them more attention. And uh, when uh, naturally Nixon asked the question, who are, who are they? Uh, the name uh, was pronounced Anatoly Lukyanov. Anatoly Lukyanov, the, uh, the future, uh, uh, well, inspirator, the, 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 the great cardinal of the, of the August Putsch. Well, in March, in March, uh, Gorbachev faces already uh, uh, the real choice because it's the time of a dramatic uh, possible confrontation in Moscow, in the streets of Moscow, with thousands of people in the streets of Moscow, um, uh, pro-Yeltsin manifestation, and with the uh, anti-Yeltsin, but certainly not pro-Gorbachev, uh, very conservative uh, Supreme Soviet barricaded inside uh, the Kremlin, and the danger of confrontation between them, and uh, certainly the danger of, uh, of the repetition in Moscow of the events of the type of Vilnius, certainly desired at that time by the, the conservative. And the choice of Gorbachev is, uh, uh, is dramatic. Either to opt for a Tiananmen scenario in the Red Square, which he was refusing, among others, for moral reasons, and uh, I agree totally with uh, Roderick uh, on this subject, or rallying, uh, rallying with the radical Democrats and accepting to compete with them, especially with Yeltsin, in the escalation of the radicalization of slogans and of promises, which he was refusing because of the sense of responsibility. Either, besides that, of the scenarios was making him hostage of one of the opposite camps. Well, true to himself, he chooses another, a third way, uh, as usual, uh, improbable and uh, <laughs> uh, impossible, the reformist political solution. So, in March, Again, Gorbachev is on the, on the limit of, uh, of committing miracles, even political miracles. In March, he gains a referendum, a uh, national referendum, organized uh, by in, ten, in nine uh, republics of the former, well, of the former 15 of the Soviet Union, with 70% approval of the participants of the population, uh, in favor of the uh, of the maintaining of the Soviet Union. In April, he uh, makes another choice. He offers to the power-thirsty Republican leaders a deal, a new uh, union, a new USSR, not the USSR, because in this new union, the Soviet Socialist was supposed to be replaced by sovereign, the Union of Sovereign Republics. 
And this deal is accepted by all the Republican leaders, Yeltsin including, and they sign a, a draft of the new treaty, and they agree all, Yeltsin including, that Gorbachev is going to be the president of this future union. And the first, uh, the, the, the fourth already uh, bet or a gamble of Gorbachev is the party, and his calendar is October. The organization of the party congress in October, where the party will be finally split uh, into parts, the conservative and the social democratic part, which was for a long time already the reality of this, uh, of this structure. Now, there was another scenario and another timetable, because if Gorbachev was heading towards October, then the party hardliners were preparing a meeting in September. And uh, that I knew and I learned from Lukyanov, who was telling me that the, uh, the party was preparing a, um, in September an extraordinary session of the plenary meeting of the Central Committee in order to play to Gorbachev actually the Khrushchev scenario. That means evacuate him and replace uh, him by somebody, probably by Lukyanov himself. It's at that time in summer that he turns to the West and, uh, well, London School of Economy is a proper place to remind it because it was the London summit, <laughs> the G7, becoming for the first time the G plus one uh, summit where he, uh, uh, he addresses a demand to, to the West to accompany uh, maybe the most difficult part of perestroika, the beginning of the economic reform, to accompany by economic assistance, uh, supervision, kind of a, a common deal, uh, a chance for a change. Yeah. And uh, well, uh, this demand is uh, is politely uh, uh, refused. Moreover, that uh, Gorbachev doesn't have uh, more um, political cards, trump cards, to uh, negotiate with the West because the Germany is united and it's, it's already in NATO. Uh, most important uh, disarmament treaties are uh, signed on the condition satisfying the West. And what was most uh, important for uh, Bush at that time that the Gulf War was over with the use by the Americans of the force under the UN mandate with the agreement and thanks to the agreement of the, of the Soviet Union. But uh, these both scenarios, October and September, are preceded by an, an August stupidity and an irrational putsch of August, which transforms uh, Gorbachev in a lame duck because uh, he loses all the levers of uh, state power at that time. Uh, the party, the KGB, the army, the leadership of all of them uh, involved in the, in the putsch against him. 
And after the putsch, Gorbachev uh, is brought to, back to Moscow, um, thanks to Yeltsin. And he is obliged to fight already not for the new union of uh, sovereign republics, but for the phantom of a union, a confederation, not a federal state, but a confederation. And he becomes, uh, which is a humiliating posture for him, a part of a, of a first tandem in, uh, in Russian uh, uh, history, a tandem in which he occupies rather the place of Medvedev than of Putin. Well, uh, you know the rest uh, of the story, uh, and I have to just to tell you that despite his political tactical art, he, he just cannot only by political means obtain the rescue of, of the state. Facing the assault of the republic, Republican separatism, most of the national Republican leaders profit from the putsch to announce uh, sovereignty. It's their way uh, not only of uh, uh, realizing their separatist uh, uh, ambitions, but also the search to protect themselves from perestroika. Because most of the national leaders at that time are the former members of the Politburo. Well, with one exception in, uh, in Russia, where this kind of trend is uh, uh, amplified by the personal feeling of uh, desire of personal revenge from Boris uh, Yeltsin. After that, uh, well, it's, uh, it goes very quickly. Uh, on December 8, it's uh, the Belovesh uh, second putsch uh, of the three Republican leaders, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and uh, certainly Boris Yeltsin. On the 21st, it's the meeting in Almaty of all the Republican leaders uh, who decide, uh, who confirm the dissolution of the Soviet uh, Union. And then Gorbachev. Uh, having addressed uh, to the public opinion, to the uh, parliaments, to the political forces which he thought would uh, uh, stay with him or would uh, assist him in securing the structure of the Union State at least as a frame for continuing the change because that was essential for him. Well, he takes, uh, and facing the, the refusal of, uh, of all of them, and the, I would say the, the obedience that uh, comes back to the surface in the behavior of uh, all the political elites, he takes the decision to resign. And he decides to resign on the 24th of December, 1991. I'm not mistaken. It's his decision is to resign on the 24th. And then it's me, yeah, who persuades him not to make it on the evening of the 24th because I remind to him that the 24th in the evening is uh, the eve of, uh, of Catholic uh, Christmas. And I tell him, Mikhail Sergeyevich, for God's sake, please do not uh, do it for the millions of people who 
gather in their families around the Christmas trees and exchange <coughs> gifts. And for many, it's the, the best evening in the year. And can you imagine they open the television and they see you on the screen, and it's a dramatic end of history of the 20th century. So please, don't do it on the 24th. So he, uh, he accepted to do it one day later, and this is how I gained one day for the history of the Soviet Union. <laughs> well, but even me, I couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't uh, allow it to leave until its full 69 years, which it uh, would be able to celebrate uh, four days later on the 30th of uh, December. Thank you. Uh, let me begin by thanking Mick for the invitation um, and to say what an honor it is to share a platform with such distinguished people who are actually players in these events. Um, I'm not, despite what Roderick said, going to talk about external actors, um, uh, but I don't mind saying that at the time in 1990-1991, I did feel very strongly that if only the West could put goods on the shelves in Soviet shops, uh, the Union might have been preserved. And certainly the sense of disappointment with which put, uh, uh, Gorbachev came back from the G7 meeting in July, I think was palpable and it was absolutely awful. What Mick has asked me to do is to talk about the legacy of 1991. In other words, to talk, to concentrate on what next. Um, as Andre said, uh, instead of a union, a treaty was signed between Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, uh, then still Belarusia, on the 8th of December 1991, creating the Commonwealth of Independent States. Uh, on the 21st of December, uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan joined, and so did Moldova, Azerbaijan, and Armenia. The CIS Treaty uh, agreed on unitary control of strategic nuclear weapons, uh, unified CIS military forces, and the concept of a single economic space. In fact, uh, Russia became the only nuclear states. The other successor states signed the non-proliferation treaty as non-nuclear states. All the successor states soon nationalized the armed forces on their territory, so there was no CIS armed force. And far from developing a single economic space, a widely diverse range of economies soon developed. So what were the other consequences of disintegration? I don't want to continue the counterfactual argument by suggesting the transition would have been easier if some sort of union had been retained. But there is no doubt that disintegration added to the difficulties of transition. A transition from an authoritarian government and a centralized command economy uh, to democracy and a market economy is an arduous and complicated process. In Latin American and Southern, Southern Europe, it required a double transition of democratization and marketization. In the post-Soviet states, weak institutions and weak states added a third dimension of transition. Many of the new states had to establish their statehood 
as well as embarking on democratization and creating a market economy. So let me start with establishing statehood. Uh, apart from Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which essentially reverted to the independence that lost when they were incorporated into the Soviet Union in 1940, and perhaps the Caucasus, which had experienced a brief period of independence after the 1917 revolution, the non-Russian successor states uh, um, uh, had never before enjoyed independent statehood in the modern international system. They were not just transition states, they were also new states, with all the associate problems of setting up institutions to make and implement policy, establishing how those institutions should relate to one another, and deciding what goals the state should pursue. Even in the case of Russia, the Russian Federation had never before been the nation state. And except in the brief few months between the declaration of sovereignty and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, the constitution and institutions of the RSFSR had never previously performed self-governing functions. The symbols of external sovereignty, such as internal recognition and individual membership of international organizations, were granted immediately. Internal sovereignty was much more difficult to assert either because a sense of statehood barely existed, this was the case, for example, in Belarus and in the Central Asian states, or because there were violent secessionist conflicts between different groups within the state, for example, in Georgia, Armenia, Moldova, and Azerbaijan. Not even their territorial limits were very obvious. Apart from the borders that they had with the outside world, their borders were purely administrative lines. They weren't controlled they were not demarcated, and for the most part, they'd been drawn for the convenience of Moscow when Moscow was still the capital of the USSR. At first, all the successor states used their old Soviet constitutions, which had been amended shortly before the USSR disintegrated to incorporate, incorporate executive presidencies. The constitutions didn't specify how power was divided between the legislature and the executive, and it was even more vague about the relationship between the two branches of the executive, the government ministries on the one hand and the uh, uh, president and his administration on the other hand. As a result, there was a great deal of confusion uh, about who communicated to whom, whose views had precedence, and this made both democratization and economic reform very difficult. When they did adopt new constitutions, they all opted for presidential constitutions, in fact, uh, super-presidential systems. This encouraged a proliferation of administrative structures serving the president, which in many cases came to resemble more the old central committee apparatus of the CPSU and its Republican counterparts than they do democratic institutions of democratizing states. In fact, in some cases, uh, political transition has turned out to be a transition to feudal type of authoritarianism. In other cases, it's led to a dynastic authoritarianism, uh, while Russia has a managed democracy, and elsewhere, democratization is fail, frail and imperfect. Now, apart from asserting sovereignty and establishing governing institutions, uh, statehood also required uh, establishing an independent foreign policy. Leaving aside the Baltic states, 
which embarked immediately on the journey to the EU and NATO membership. The other successor states had to establish independent foreign policies and decide on their foreign policy aims. There were a lot of structural problems in establishing independent foreign policies. For example, apart from Russia, none of the successor states possessed foreign policy institutions or people to work in the institutions once they were formed. All the Union Republics that had formed the USSR had, in theory, possessed ministries of foreign affairs uh, created by Stalin at the end of the World War, uh, Second World War in a bid to get seats for all the republics when uh, it was clear that the uh, Soviet Union would be hopelessly outnumbered in the United Nations. In the event, he succeeded only for Belarus and Ukraine, and these were the only two post-Soviet states, apart from Russia, that had any experience of foreign representation uh, or uh, having had separate seats in the UN and having contributed staff to its international civil service and specialized agencies. Uh, moreover, the personnel of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Soviet Union was overwhelmingly Slav, predominantly Russian, so there were very few experienced diplomats who could be repatriated to their home republics to establish a foreign ministry. At first, the foreign representatives accredited to the governments of the newly independent states continued to operate from Moscow, and this inadvertently, perhaps, contributed to the sense that Russian interests took precedence over the interests of the other successor states. The Russian Federation began from a far more advantageous position. Uh, 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 after all, foreign embassies, international agencies, uh, uh, prominent NGOs, media representatives were already located in Moscow, which was now not the Soviet capital, but of course the Russian capital. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs took over the buildings uh, and, and most of the personnel of the Soviet Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, in return for taking responsibility for the massive Soviet foreign debt, Russia also inherited Soviet property abroad. Soviet embassies and trade missions uh, uh, became Russian. Uh, Russia inherited valuable intangible assets such as highly professional diplomats with experience of the international system and well-established uh, channels of communication. The uh, new foreign ministries and the new diplomats of the other successor states had all the problems of trying to establish embassies in foreign countries. I remember one event at the LSE when the new Georgian ambassador arrived with his suitcases uh, because he'd been invited to attend the event, but he not, did not yet have um, uh, an embassy or an office or even uh, somewhere to live. Uh, furthermore, in December 1991, uh, without any discussion in the international system, uh, far less between the leaders of the 15 republics that had constituted the Soviet Union, Russia was recognized as the legal heir to the Soviet Union, uh, a permanent member of the UN Security Council, and the only uh, successor state with recognized nuclear status. So Russia immediately occupied a more prominent role in the international system than any of the other successor states. And one could argue that this created a legacy in the relations between the successor states. Russia had no difficulty in establishing uh, diplomatic relations with the outside world, 
But Russians found it far more difficult establishing relations with the other successor states. Uh, defining Russia's relations with the other successor states was made complicated by the fact that the majority of the Russian population, including the political leaders instrumental in dissolving the USSR, found it very difficult to accept the loss of empire. Uh, the adoption of two distinct terms, near and far abroad, to refer to the former Soviet republics and to the outside world, symbolized the perceptual and practical problems Russians had in converting the relationship uh, between the old Union republics into foreign policy and accepting that the other states were also fully independent. There was another problem. Uh, the foreign policy expertise that Russia inherited was of absolutely no help in dealing with the CIS. A few diplomats knew anything about the other former Soviet republics, and as a result, Russia was rather slow to develop formal diplomatic relations with the near abroad. A, complicated, a complicating issue in, in Russia's relations was the fact that 25 million Russians and Russian speakers now found themselves as disadvantaged national minorities, uh, minorities but sizable minorities in many cases. For example, 38% of the population of Kazakhstan was Russian or Russian-speaking. 22% of Ukraine's population was Russian or Russian-speaking. 21% of Kyrgyzia's population and 13% in uh, Belarus and Moldova, respectively. In the first uh, foreign policy concept adopted in Russia in 1993, a primary objective was set out as protecting the rights of Russians abroad. Uh, this was important to Russians, perhaps more for any other reason, was that the last thing that the Russian economy could afford was the return of even half or even a quarter or even a tenth of those Russians to Russia. Nevertheless, the statement caused considerable disquiet in the near and far abroad, and this has had a lasting impact on the way Russian foreign policy is viewed. What about the consequence of the disintegration in 1991 for creating a market economy? The economic condi conditions under which the newly independent states attempted to reform their economies were inauspicious. Uh, as we've heard, the Soviet economy had been in steep decline for a number of years. Uh, by 1991, the economy, economic conditions were catastrophic. Uh, there was another problem in the way in which the Soviet economy had developed, uh, it, uh, sometimes referred to as the USSR Incorporated. It was never developed in such a way that the constituent parts could be uh, 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 self-sustaining it was always developed with the idea that uh, it was an integrated whole and the de development of one part required the development of all. Even if you looked at a map uh, of the infrastructure of Russia, it was clear that uh, uh, it was like a uh, 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 the hub of a wheel with the spokes radiating outwards. So a lot of the infrastructure uh, went through Russia and uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, connecting one republic with another. In 1992, the Russian government embarked on economic reform, uh, freeing prices immediately without waiting until the other successor states were ready to follow. 
the result was an extremely high rate of inflation in Russia and severe economic consequences for those successor states still using the Soviet and Russian currency unit, the ruble. When it became clear that Russia could not implement economic reform, while the ruble remained the official currency of other countries, the Russian government effectively dissolved the ruble zone. By 1993, therefore, far from the single economic space envisaged in the CIS treaty, all the successor states had their own currencies and the rate and the extent of the economic reform uh, varied uh, very significantly. However, the other former republics were still dependent on Russia for their energy supplies and even those that had their own energy were dependent on Russian pipelines for getting their energy to the world market. Uh, uh, as prices rose, the other republics became increasingly indebted to Russia and in many cases the Russian government began to offer debt for equity deals, thereby acquiring valuable economic interests in the other successor states. In order to reduce their dependence on Russia, all CIS members attempted to diversify their economy and political relations, economic and political relations, hoping to attract external investment and assistance. As a result, intra-CIS trade declined year on year. Uh, um, for example, if you look at Russia's trade with the CIS countries, it declined from 24% of turnover in 1995 to 15% 10 years later in 2005. So what then was the legacy of 1991? Uh, first of all, uh, patchy democratization. Uh, second of all, uneven economic reform. Uh, the difficulty of fulfilling the integrating goals of the Commonwealth of Independent States and the other regional economic organizations uh, uh, result in part because of the different rates of reform, in part because of the fear, even amongst those in favor of integration, of Russian hegemony, and in part because of Russia's reluctance to really put the resources into integration. There is, I think, a legacy in Russia's relations with the outside world, a lurking suspicion, and never far below the surface, that Russia aims to recreate the USSR. In fact, its poor record in accomplishing the economic integration for which Russian leaders say they aim seems to me to be a very clear indication that Russia does not want to establish the USSR. But it certainly does see the CIS as its sphere of privileged interest. Not all CIS members agree and nor, of course, does the outside world, and this, too, is a legacy of 1991. It leaves me to conclude by asking the question, would things have been different if the nine states plus Georgia had implemented transition together? Impossible, of course, to say. Uh, perhaps uh, uh, the frozen conflicts in Moldova and Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, would not be frozen, uh, but uh, would have been resolved because if there had been no uh, disintegration, perhaps the secessionist drive would have subsided. Perhaps Moldova would not have become the poorest state in Europe because it would have had assistance from the other republics. 
Um, in any case, uh, Russia would have had to become part of the solution rather than part of the problem as it either is now or at least is always thought to be now by the rest of the world. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Uh, we have about uh, 25 minutes, half an hour for questions and answers. Are there people with microphones going around? Okay, before, before anybody else asks a question, I'll get my, my retaliation in first, if I might. And uh, I'll, ask, uh, I'll just ask a general question to all of the three, maybe beginning with Roderick, and ask him and Andre and Margot to ask whether they agree with the following statements. Either one made by G.W. Bush or one made by Vladimir Putin, and I wonder where they would stand in this great debate between these two great intellectuals. <clears throat> Um, that the end of the Soviet Union was the, great, the greatest day of freedom or it was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the late 20th century. Roderick, would you agree with G.W. Bush or Vladimir Putin? And I'll get on to you, Andre, as well. You, you did. Put it in the front. You said they were both intellectual giants. Um, I think that both statements are true and false. It depends who you are. I mean, uh, if you're a Russian, the collapse of the Soviet Union led to lots of very unpleasant things, and including the destruction of your country, your economy, and a whole lot of things. And for most Russians, it certainly was a catastrophe. Whether it was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century is a different question. For a whole lot of other people, including actually, I think, a whole lot of Russians, of course it was the beginning of a kind of freedom, of an extremely imperfect kind of freedom. So I think both these great men, in some sense, are right. <laughs> Very diplomatic answer, but a good one. Andre. Yeah, uh, well, I, uh, I, I, I agree uh, with, uh, with Roderick, basically, though uh, I'm not uh, at least no more. Uh, obliged to be diplomatic, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I'd answer differently. Still, uh, I would say uh, the answer to to this question, uh, which uh, appears to me not to be very correct, because in this question you have to to include a, a second part. It depends on with which you are going to replace it. And depending on this, you, you may get different answers. The diplomacy is overwhelming so far. There were winners and losers, and it seems to me that the one group of losers that almost always um, um, get left out of the calculation is there were actually some Soviet people. Uh, there were uh, Russian uh, speakers who were not Russian, who landed up in other republics and found themselves in a very difficult position because the lingua franca of the Soviet Union was Russian and they did not particularly want to learn Uzbek or, or Kazakh or, or whatever. So I think uh, there were, there were uh, mixed marriages. There were a whole lot of people who really were Soviet people. They never, the Soviet leadership never managed to create new Soviet man but they did create quite a lot of Soviet men and women, and they lost out. Okay. 
Okay, right. Well, I started with the provocation. There's a lady here in Mo. Where's the... Where's the That's Ellen I know it is. This is Dorendorf, yeah. My question is for Andrei Grachov, and it's related to what Margot just said. It's about nationalism. Do you think that you, that Gorbachev and the people around him, including you, underestimated the potency of national feeling and emotion, which wouldn't be surprising because I think in the West, in the 70s and 80s, if someone had said that the key uh, uh, um, forces in the new century would be nationalism and religion, nobody would have um, predicted that. So it's not criticism, I'm just asking. Well, there's an underestimation, yeah. Do you want to take that? Okay, let's, let's go with that. Andre, Yes, please. okay. Well, uh, Ellen, you, uh, you obliged me to go in, uh, uh, certainly beyond the diplomatic <laughs> uh, consideration. Well, I, I, I would put it this way. I don't think that uh, what, uh, what uh, well, in fact, killed the Soviet Union, among other reasons, was nationalism. Because in uh, many of the cases, nationalism was a cover for a power struggle, for a political rivalry, uh, for personal rivalry, and also for what I call not a real ethnic nationalism, but uh, uh, I would qualify it a, a nomenclature nationalism. And uh, uh, that was, well, naturally with some exceptions because there were real uh, nationalist uh, currents representing the uh, the mood and the, 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 the psychology and, uh, and the aspiration of important portions of the population, but that was mostly uh, limited to, uh, to the Baltic republics and certainly was not the case of, uh, uh, of Central Asia to, uh, to, uh, to a lesser extent in, in, in the Caucasus and certainly uh, not to, to, uh, to Belarusia and Ukraine where these trends existed, but still they were uh, of, of marginal importance uh, from my point of view. They were, on the contrary, largely uh, exploited and used by, uh, by the power elites that uh, wanted to profit uh, from, uh, from them and uh, to fight the, uh, the, the central power including with the, uh, with the message and because of the democratic message of, of Perestroika. Just to, just to follow up there to Lady Darendorf's question, just an addition, did anybody predict that the disintegration would actually come from the center? Because all the material I was reading in the 1980s was talking about the revolt of the nationalities, no. the issues of what's going to happen in the Islamic Republic, in the, in the Muslim republics, uh, that book by Helena Carrier-Doncaus. Yeah. Everybody thought there would be elemental nationalist revolts from the periphery, whereas in fact, fundamentally, in the end, the disintegration started at the center. And I don't think anybody got that right. That's my kind of feeling about it, Andre. Yeah, I don't sure. know, maybe Roger could come back on oh, that yeah. as well. Andre, you first. I start, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, Michael, certainly the Central Asian republics um, uh, well, they certainly did, uh, and they felt the, the contrary to what Ellen Carrer Dancos was uh, was depicting. Yeah. They were the, the least happy with the disintegration of the Soviet Union because they were those who were profiting most of it. Not only economically, I mean, in in, in an egoist way, but uh, what Margaret was saying, 
to uh, well, it was the Soviet Union that propelled the 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 cultural class, the elites, uh, the young generations to the modernity, and uh, thanks also to the to the Russian languages, uh, they were living in the 20th century, while the collapse of the Soviet Union, well, pushed them uh, uh, back and, and down, in some cases, to the status of the third world countries. Uh, while, uh, while the real uh, uh, driving force of the disintegration came from Russia, from Russian elite, let's say from the two uh, sections of the Russian political elite. First, the conservative part of the Russian, of the Soviet Communist Party, headed by Ligachev, Zyuganov, and, uh, and others, because they headed the, the conservative wing uh, of, of, of mutiny against uh, Perestroika and Gorbachev. And second, certainly, the new, uh, uh, the new uh, generation of, uh, of radical, uh, so to say, Democrats uh, around Yeltsin. Roger, do you want to come in and I'll bring Margot well, in? I yeah. just wanted to say a couple of things. I mean, Hélène Carrère-Dancourt, uh, who knows what she's talking about, got that theory spectacularly wrong. Yes, I agree. Uh, and she's still dining out on the fact that she <laughs> predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, but she didn't. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing about nationalism, I, was, uh, I went to school as a small boy in Scotland, and that's a very long time ago, and I've been surprised ever since by the total inability of the English to understand what goes on in Scotland. <laughs> uh, and that's a sort of serious point, because you can miss these things. On the question of the implosion of Russia, again, it's very difficult not to confuse oneself with hindsight. There was an argument in the 1970s in the Foreign Office. Foreign Office goes in for political correctness, and you have to use particular phrases. And we were all told we were never, ever again to use the word Russia or Russian, because there was no such place. There was only the Soviet Union. Well, I did Russian at university, and I thought just the opposite. And the fact that the impulse came from Russia and not from the periphery seems to me to have been absolutely normal, and I would like to think that I predicted I can't actually document that. <laughs> I'll just add one thing, and that is uh, something that I think it's very hard to understand, and that is that, that um, the Russians felt as badly done by, or in fact worse done by, by the Soviet Union than, than any of the other republics. Uh, if you look, and, and, and they will list their grievances. They didn't have the same kind of, uh, of uh, republican institutions that the other republics had. Uh, they didn't even have the same kind of communist party institutions that other republics had. And they believed quite firmly that, that the, their economic development had been retarded by the need to invest in the periphery um, and that the Russia's wealth had been squandered on uh, bringing up the, the other republics. Uh, and I think you know, it, that really explains why it was Russia that defected above and well, all the other uh, republics, apart from the Baltic republics. Yeah, great. Okay, we've got plenty of questions there. Um, is anybody up there? Yeah, I'll take somebody, the gentleman at the back there, please. Uh, just one question, really, might be for Mr. Grachov. Um, was there ever any concern that the Russian Federation, or, or at least its predecessor, might actually implode? I know this. I know this. Um, we're talking about the Soviet Union. How about Russia itself? Can you, can you ask that question again? Because I couldn't hear you properly. Can I Sorry, getting a bit of feedback. Was there any, ever any concern that Russia itself, you know, what's now called the Russian Federation, or formerly called the Russian Soviet Federal Socialist Republic, would itself implode into component parts? 
Okay, that's great. I've got another, there's another question over here somewhere. The gentleman here? Yes. Yeah, and then I'll, I'll pick these two up, and then anything else that comes along. I'll pick up. There's a lady over there, yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, please. Uh, why do you think uh, Moscow elites uh, didn't support uh, Russians and the Russian-speaking people in uh, newly created republics uh, in 1990 and 1991? For example, in a way, uh, London supported Ulster movements in, uh, in the beginning of 20th century in Northern Ireland. Okay, basically two questions about Russia. Why did Russia implode? Could it have done support for Russians, presumably outside of outside of Russia, why didn't they do more? Then and since, I suppose. Uh, Margot, do you want to have a go at that first? Any of those? Or uh, it, was, it, was, it was certainly, a, uh, there was a huge fear that uh, Russia would implode. Indeed, uh, 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 one reason why President Putin set about so firmly centralizing the state when he became president in, in 2000 was this fear that Russia was about to go the same way as the Soviet Union. Um, I think I'll leave to Andre this question of why Russians didn't give more support to the Russians in the diaspora. Okay, Andre. Uh, well, on the, on the first question, uh, in fact, uh, there, is, there is now uh, no reason why Russia, in theory, shouldn't follow the uh, 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 the fate of, of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was Russia, historically. And from this point of view, uh, actually the, the only thing that made uh, this divorce between Russia and other republics uh, well, let's say, uh, contained in uh, or limited uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to the former republics was, uh, by the way, uh, thanks to Stalin, who uh, in the constitution of, uh, uh, of 1936 uh, wrote down that uh, the Soviet Union was a federation of uh, sovereign and independent states uh, a voluntary union of them, and uh, precisely on this basis, they claim to to become members of uh, of the United Nations. So, the formal ground for uh, this separation, the legal, let's say, was there. While uh, the fact that Russia was not composed of independent republics, but of autonomous regions and republics, uh, well, at least provided the legal reason for Yeltsin and then for Putin to go on war in Chechnya when Chechens tried to claim uh, the same level of uh, uh, autonomy or sovereignty as, uh, as the neighboring uh, Caucasian republics. As to the support of the Russians uh, outside the the, uh, the, the the Russian borders, uh, well it's a, it's a hard question. It's uh, it's uh, well as in many other cases, not only in the in the Russian case. It's a very sensitive problem because once you start to support your your uh, uh, your language-speaking minorities, uh, be it in Sudet uh, Sudetenland or uh, elsewhere, it you you immediately risk to 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 run into. Uh, into a huge international conflict, but uh, it is certainly a sensitive subject, and it's being uh, 
the, the, the ground for uh, debates and, uh, and political conflicts between Russians, uh, Russian Federation and, uh, and Baltic uh, republics where there are important uh, minorities in Latvia, for example. Uh, or um, in uh, uh, in Abkhazia, where uh, amazingly it was not the Russian-speaking population, but uh, Russian passport-possessing population that became, uh, let's say, the uh, the object of support uh, from the Russian Federation. Okay, thanks. I heard a question over here from a lady. Where's, where's the chat with you? Yeah, okay. Good, good, good exercise. <coughs> I was actually going to suggest earlier that perhaps it's not surprising that the Soviet Union collapsed. The only question is why it didn't collapse sooner than it actually did. And anyone who read and, and took in um, Amal Reek's Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984 yeah. will we'll see where I'm coming from. Um, but another observation. Um, based on living in uh, Prague in the two years leading up to the end of communism in Czechoslovakia, um, is that on one hand, uh, everything pointed to the logic of the collapse of the Soviet Union, but actually people didn't really dare believe it. They didn't dare, they hoped for it, they didn't dare believe that it could happen. Yeah. Okay, the late is late. Uh, okay, fine. Uh, the gentleman down uh, back, I'm picking up as much as I can. By the way, Amalric said the Soviet Union would not survive until 1984 because of a war with China, if I remember correctly. And that was wrong. Yeah. Unless a war happened, I didn't notice. Yes. So, you know, yeah, uh, it sounds, you, it, it's a great title. Uh, yes. Do you think that the, uh, the church played any role in the collapse of the Soviet Union or possibly in actually keeping it together? Right, okay, a question about the church. Uh, do you want to do the church, Andre? Yeah, I'm. Or Roger, <laughs> Roger wants to do the church. I, don't I cannot you. escape any. No, you can't. No, we're, we're, I'm labelling you this evening. Well, uh, strangely enough, I will start not with the Orthodox, but with the Catholic Church, because among uh, uh, a list of reasons that are <coughs> presented, uh, especially uh, in the West, for the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's the role of Vatican and Jean Paul II. Uh, because um, many uh, claim that uh, not only Solidarność, but, but especially Vatican and Jean-Paul II, uh, 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 as we know now, supported by Reagan administration, uh, played a particular role in the, in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, I would relativize that, because certainly uh, the church in Poland played an immense role. Um, in uh, what happened there, and especially in providing the, let's say, the territory for the survival of counter power, uh, even during the, the, the communist regime, uh, while uh, uh, it didn't play the, not only the similar but uh, essential role in the, in the political development inside uh, the Soviet Union, uh, amazingly, it was rather the the example of Prague Spring and uh, and Dubček who played a much more influential role in uh, in in the attempt of Gorbachev and his followers, after all, to try to repeat 20 years later the the Prague Spring in uh, inside the Soviet Union. 
That means the exercise of building a communism with a human face. As to the Russian church, the Orthodox church, uh, mm, frankly speaking, I, uh, I don't think uh, that's at the time of, of perestroika because uh, it's true, church profited uh, a lot from perestroika's, uh, let's say, emancipating stimulus, uh, the 1,000 years, the millennium of R Russian Orthodox Church was celebrated uh, in the Soviet Union, thanks uh, to, the, um, uh, to the new spirit uh, of perestroika. But then, uh, naturally, with the liberalization of the political atmosphere, uh, the church moved in uh, to um, reoccupy the, the space, including the spiritual space, which was uh, quickly liberated by the collapse of the communist ideology. Roderick, please. I just want to add a, a thing to that. I think that the, what happened in 1988 with the celebration of the millennium actually was very important politically. It may not have been the church itself that was a political actor, but the fact that this was recognized goes back to the point about what was the role of Russia in all this. I mean, the, the, it seems to me, subject to your correction, that the idea of the church in Russian history is very important, whatever the state of the institution at any given moment. And so it was a reassertion of Russianness. Uh, people that I talked to were, so, were disgusted by what had happened to Russian church property under you know, the destruction of these beautiful churches. So it was part, it fed into the nationalist feeling, and then, as you say, with the collapse of the belief in the communist ideology, it flooded in to fill a space, and that was quite important too. So it played a role even if it wasn't an actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Dr. your time, so I can take a couple more questions either from up there, on the balcony, or down there. Yeah, the lady here in front, yeah. Please. And anybody else from up there? Don't want to discriminate again. Until the moment you talked about consequences in, uh, in the ex-Soviet Union and Russia, how do you think globally the consequences have been? Um, do you think it's favored a left-wing project or the collapse of Russia, uh, the ex-Soviet Union has helped a left-wing project in the sense of being an English person, I've lived in Latin America for many years, and in Latin America, when the war went down and the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a lot of disillusion amongst the left wing. I've come back to England after 25 years, and it seems that no one's talking about another sort of project from um, capitalism. And so I just wondered, on a global thing, what each one of you think, what the effect, the consequence has been um, for world ideology in different projects? Thanks very much. That's a great question. And anybody else up from the balcony? No, you're a very quiet and deferential lot up there today. There's uh, somebody else in the corner over there. Yeah, and I'll take that. Maybe there's somebody behind me. Take the three together and then make summary comments. Yeah. Okay. Please, sir. Uh, yes, we, we don't seem to hear much about the relationship between uh, Russia and China these days. What, what effect did the... Um, events of the early 90s have on, on, on that connection and where does it stand today? Great, I think that's widening the debate out just like the previous question. There's a gentleman just behind you. We'll take this as the last one. I don't want to overrun. Yeah, please, sir. Hi. Uh, yeah, this is another foreign policy uh, question. Um, I just want to know if the panel agrees that um, the Soviet Union's uh, policy in Africa well, it, the Soviet Union collapsing was instrumental in the ending of the apartheid regime. Okay, one for you, I think then, Margot. 
Um, could I could I ask? I had one other question. I mean, Roderick, you raised an interesting point at the beginning where you said you don't think the West had much to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Could, however, reversing the problem, could the West have saved the Soviet Union or at least saved the reformed Soviet Union by giving to it in 1991 the kind of martial aid and martial support which many people were talking about at the time? That wouldn't have kept the old Soviet Union, but it would have led to a different kind of reform. Could the West, should the West have done well, actually to have saved it? And it seems to me at the time there, there were many in the West who were actually thinking, how can we keep the USSR in the game, not how can we disintegrate? So four questions. One on the ideological implications of the left, China, Africa, the USSR, and the end of apartheid. Maybe an ironic question, could the West have actually saved the, a reformed Soviet Union rather than actually bringing it down? Roger, why don't we begin with you? Well, very quickly on the left-wing project, I think one of the things that always amazed me in the 70s and the 80s was the persistence of illusion on the West about what was going on in the Soviet Union. I mean, just before I went there, people were telling me how much better the Soviet health system was than our health system. It was completely untrue. Um, the illusions were... I had a conversation with the, the former communist mayor of Rome after the Soviet Union collapsed, and he said... Well, he still believed in the Soviet Union. I said, it's not there anymore. He said, I don't believe in that Soviet Union. I believe in that Soviet Union. I think there was a lot of illusion. Uh, if, if the socialist project in the West depends on the existence or non-existence of the Soviet Union, it seems to me it must be a pretty feeble animal. Um, China does open a huge... China and the Soviet Union, I might leave to... Margot, but I would like to go on to, because I think it was you who raised the question of the economic summit in the summer of 1991, when Gorbachev went with expectations that he would be given a great chunk of money. He was talking about $13 billion. We told him, I mean, I was involved in all that, we told him very specifically... For five years. For whatever period, we told him very specifically before he went there that he wouldn't get it, and that if he asked for it, he'd be humiliated. And he did ask for it. And then he had to explain when he went back home why he didn't get it. And that actually did, I suspect, reduce his prestige in Moscow as well. The reason why we wouldn't give it to him, and after the coup he asked for it again, uh, you can argue about that it was a good reason or a bad reason, but the reason was that because there was no uh, credible economic reform program in place, it would be throwing money into a black hole. That was our argument correct or not. The thing that I think was uh, a word I use too often, which is disgraceful, was our reaction to the similar request that Yeltsin made in January 1992, when there was an economic program in place, a rather daring one, which a very risky one. And Gaidar came to us and said, we do need that money. If we don't get it, said Gaidar in about January or February, by the end of 1992, we will have inflation of 3,000% and I will be out of a job. We said to him, well, that's awfully, we're very sorry about that, but you don't seem to understand there's an economic crisis in the West and we can't afford it. And I think that was a pretty bad decision and Guida was right. By the end of 1992, there was 3,000% inflation and he was out of a job. So I think... I don't, I'm not sure that the Marshall Plan was a totally different mm. set of circumstances. The Marshall Plan was designed to uh, revive economies which had worked and places with, with economic institutions which had worked. 
the Soviet Union had no economic institution of the kind that we could recognize, so it was a completely different problem. And the Marshall Plan kind of project probably wouldn't have worked. But we perhaps could have done something, and it perhaps could have made a difference. But we chose not to. Okay. Andre? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, once... Uh, we are on the subject of the G7. <laughs> uh, 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 I'd like to, to add my reaction. I think uh, you are right saying that uh, you wouldn't have saved the Soviet Union by a Marshall Plan because, uh, uh, by the way, there was no way of, uh, of offering uh, to the Soviet Union the, the version of a, Soviet, uh, of a Marshall Plan uh, under the same conditions or similar conditions. But... Uh, Without saving the Soviet Union, it would have, it might have helped uh, Gorbachev to avoid the putsch in August, and that would have uh, changed considerably the uh, the further development of uh, of this of the situation. Now, uh, uh, going back to the question, uh, I, I would. Uh, maybe try to, 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 to combine them, the, the, the global uh, and even the left uh, uh, illusions or uh, hopes uh, related to, to Gorbachev and the Soviet Union um, uh, action uh, in Africa and even in South Africa into, to, uh, let's say, a reflection on, on the role, the, the, the presence of the Soviet Union, not only the action, but the existence of the Soviet Union played on the international scene. Mm. And that, from my point of view, was an essential thing, because not only it was providing, well, it's true, various uh, uh, dictatorial regimes or, uh, uh, I don't know, artificial... Uh, 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 socialists who were proclaiming themselves uh, leftists in various countries, well, in, like in Afghanistan, uh, but at the same time, the, the, the very existence of maybe an idealized uh, Soviet Union was providing the world uh, political and intellectual scene with an alternative, while the, uh, the collapse of this uh, alternative, it's true that uh, well, the Soviets can hardly be blamed for the fact because they were obliged to play an excessive, to pay an excessive price for playing this kind of idealized, uh, 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 an ideal world. But uh, the disappearance of this alternative created, uh, from my point of view, to a certain extent, a very dangerous situation, or the feeling of the the triumph of the one and, uh, uh, well, let's say, not a one-party state, but one model uh, world. Uh, kind of the feeling of the end of history with the liberal and even the ultra-liberal model and uh, the triumphalist uh, uh, global uh, foreign policy of, of the West with the, well, with the adventures and the, um, the troubles we, uh, we know about. Uh, regarding the... Uh, uh, the South uh, African situation, I think that here we can even be quite formal and precise. Uh, I know it from at least the documents and statements of some of the African, South African leaders, in, including Bote, for example, at that, that time, who uh, did not hesitate to uh, uh, 
to compare Leclerc with Gorbachev and who were saying that the, the action of the Soviet Union in the south of Africa and continent, that means uh, the cooperation over the question of, of Namibia, for example, and the cooperation between the Soviets and the Americans uh, at that time in evacuating the Cubans uh, made it possible for uh, the, uh, uh, the, the real uh, uh, evacuation of the South African, uh, the ending of the South African evacuation of Namibia, and as one of the consequences, the, the ending of apartheid in South Africa. Marga, last words here. Um, yes, I, I, um, I, I think that it is not the disintegration of the Soviet Union, but perestroika itself, which made possible the resolution not just of the political conflict in uh, South Africa, but various other African conflicts as well. Uh, uh, once the Soviet Union became so weak, it became almost impossible for the, Russia, the South African government to argue that the, they had to have their system because of the danger of total onslaught from the north, which is what they used to argue. Um, on the question of China, I think the disintegration of the Soviet Union uh, made the Chinese leaders believe that they'd been right about Tiananmen Square, um, uh, left them even firmer in the conviction that the way to economic reform was through the Communist Party retaining political control over China. And what the legacy is, I think, is that they have a, a, a strategic partnership, uh, as they call it at the moment, but I think that if you watch that space, uh, they will quite soon turn into quite serious rivals. As for the international system, I think one thing that uh, the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War showed us was how immensely peaceful the Cold War was and how uh, immensely stable compared to everything that has happened since then. <laughs> well, for some, and forgetting Abel Archer, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was stable because we didn't have a nuclear war, but we could have had a nuclear war. Uh, That's uh, another piece of alternative history. Yes. And on, on that optimistic note that we are all still here, uh, I shall draw the proceedings to a conclusion. Uh, let me first of all make an announcement before you run off. Uh, on Thursday, 26th of January this week, uh, that is to say, I think on Thursday, uh, we are Ideas will be hosting the third uh, public lecture by our visiting uh, Philip Ramon professor. Professor Ramachandra Guhar is in the audience tonight from India, who will be speaking on why India will not and indeed should not become a superpower. Uh, please come early because I think it's already sold out, so if you want to get tickets, you'll simply have to get there early. I've certainly learned one thing here this evening. I've learned many things here this evening, but I also learned from Andre how Christmas save the USSR by one day. So perhaps that is the answer to the Christianity question. I think it's been a terrific discussion. I will also, by the way, promote Andre's book, which I think is a fantastic book, which will be on sale behind me. Uh, thank you to all of you for all of your questions. But could I ask you all to thank our three speakers, Roger Braithwaite, Andre and Margaret. <laughs>